Well, if you've been with us for a little while, you know that 1 Corinthians is not what we have been preaching through. We've been preaching through the Gospel of John. Uh, and as is our custom, we're, we are convinced that the most faithful way to continually go through the Scriptures is verse by verse, expositional preaching. However, there are moments that do come and there are topics that do rise from sequential exposition that are worth our time to understand the significance of them throughout all of Scripture. And the resurrection is certainly one of those topics. That is what we're going to do today. Last week, we looked at the drama, the story, the, the impact of what it was for Mary Magdalene, in particular, this woman previously possessed by seven demons, now to be crying at the tomb and be the first to converse with the risen Christ. We looked at the story and we felt the impact of that moment in the dew-laden grass in the, the early beams of the morning on that first ever Lord's Day. But we want to do today is try to dive down into the depths of the supreme significance of the resurrection because the resurrection of Christ is the preeminent truth claim of all of Christianity of all of the Christian faith. To lose the resurrection is to lose the gospel, and to lose the gospel is to lose Christianity altogether, wholesale. As we read earlier, Scott read 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Your faith is worthless and your sins are still killing you if we don't have the resurrection. If the bodily resurrection of Jesus did not happen, then today and every Sunday is an actual waste of your time, verifiably a waste of your time to be here, to be any Christian church. If in fact Christ is not raised, then Karl Marx was right. Religion is just the opiate of the masses. It's just a way to subdue people and keep them under control. And then that means that I'm a hustler, a charlatan, and a cult leader, and so is every faithful pastor. If the resurrection isn't real, then faith is a figment of your imagination. If there's no resurrection, then there's no salvation from sin and death, and Christians are the most pathetic idiots in all of history. If there is no resurrection, life is meaningless because that means then that you are just a random sack of protein atoms meaninglessly brought forth by accident from some primordial oozing soup. That's all you are and your life has no matter. This is just all what we do here is just a group delusion. That's what this is. This is just a holdover from medieval mass hysteria. But 1 Corinthians 15, 20 is written in our Bibles, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And that fact is what we're gonna look at. This fact supremely dictates the entirety of human history and world events. And you hear uh, superlative statements like that all the time, but hear it in fullness in this text. It does dictate all of human history. If the resurrection really happened, then that changes the, the significance of everything else. Everything else in history. This fact of the resurrection, it grounds our faith, it establishes our confidence, and it verifies. This fact is of first importance to us. We heard Scott read this as well. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, For I delivered to you as of first importance 
Paul, talking to a church, says, this was the first importance, the first thing I taught you about, the first thing that you must know and the last thing you must ever let go of. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is of first importance. And because of the premier significance of the resurrection, that's what we're gonna do today is establish for the first time maybe, or hopefully reestablish for many of you, our commitment to it and our thanks to God for it. Diving down deep in doctrine, all it does is launch us further into doxology, launch us higher into worship, into gratitude, into praise for who God is and what he's done. And it'll put steel in our spines as his remnant in a pagan culture. That's what confidence in the resurrection will do. It will put warmth in our hearts as we consider his great love for us, made visible by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how John MacArthur described it. He said, there exists no greater event in redemption history than the resurrection of Christ because it completes and validates his sacrificial death and advances the program of the kingdom with an internally living king. So we're gonna look at it from three perspectives this morning. We're gonna look at the necessity of a bodily resurrection, why it's necessary. Then we're gonna look at liberal denials of the resurrection so that we understand them and can answer them. And then thirdly, we're gonna look at the pilgrim's hope that the resurrection is our great hope as we are pilgrims and strangers in this earth. Firstly, the necessity of the bodily resurrection, our biblical reliability, our confidence in the reliability of the Bible lies in the resurrection being truly bodily, Jesus walking out of the tomb. Think of Jesus's appearances. There's seven groups or individuals of people that the Bible, the New Testament says Jesus appeared to. Mary Magdalene, John 28 through 10, 18 through 10, or 10, eight through 18. The disciples, John 20, 19 through 23. Thomas, John 20, 24 through 31. Luke records it in Acts 1, 1 through 8. 500 believers, and we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. His half-brother, Jesus' half-brother, James, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. And twice to Paul in Acts 9 on Emmaus Road, and then in Acts 23 when Paul's in prison in Jerusalem. Now, these are 14 total appearances that the Bible records of Jesus after the resurrection. Eight in the vicinity of Jerusalem, four in Galilee one on the Mount of Olives and one on the road to Damascus. And not to mention all of the Old Testament prophecies about the bodily resurrection of the Messiah, chief among them being two, Job 19, 25 to 27 and Psalm 16, 10. Now, if the Bible, if the Bible is gonna go to links that far to record that many appearances, prophetically say that they will happen and then in actuality have them happen and be recorded, then we have to recognize that the reliability of the Bible hangs on that. Because if the resurrection is the pinnacle moment of the whole Bible, if everything is pointing to a Messiah, a savior, one who comes from the seed of the woman who can crush forever Satan and everything contingent upon him, meaning sin and death, that rely upon the presence and the reality of Satan, if that is the moment that the whole Bible is building towards and it's not true, it didn't actually happen, then the whole Bible is worthless. If, that, if it misses that point, then we don't need the Bible on anything else. 
if all it is is just a decent history book and a book of morals, because the resurrection isn't true, but we still have some good recorded history, you know, Jericho and Canaan, Babylon, things like that, Egypt, we can still look to it for that or some good morals, then we don't need it. We have history books and we have moral teachings from every other religion in the world. So if we lose the bodily resurrection of Christ, then we lose all of this. This whole thing is worthless. It's, it's meaningless. It's, it's, it has no more value than any other religion's religious text. The fact is, is that can we deny the real, the real bodily resurrection of Christ and still be a Bible believer? The answer is no. If you deny the resurrection, then you don't believe the Bible. And you don't believe the Bible on anything else. You can't say, well, I don't believe the resurrection stuff, but everything else I believe, I think that's true. Well, then that, that denial of the resurrection means you deny the rest of it. You're not only free to do that, you are doing that. You do that. It's a rejection of an inerrancy, a rejection of reliability, unraveling of the veracity of objective truth therein, meaning in the Bible. What use is the Bible at all if it can't get right, the resurrection, the thing that the whole book has been pointing to? If it happens this far into the book, then all of this was building up to it, and what good was it? It has nothing. So we need the bodily resurrection if we're going to believe our Bibles. The necessity of it is there. But it's also, now we move into the Bible, that we need the bodily resurrection of Christ. It's necessary because it's proof of who Jesus was. These are according to Jesus' own words here first in Matthew 12, 39 through 40. But Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Meaning the Pharisees are saying, prove it. Do something that we can't deny that you are who you say you are. Do some kind of miracle. Do some kind of something. But no sign will be given to it, Jesus says, except the sign of what? The prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You don't get anything else besides this. He will carry, the true Messiah will carry the sign of Jonah, meaning on the level that he is a teacher from God because Jonah has a message. Do you remember Jonah's message? It wasn't, there's a God-shaped hole in your heart. I know you're missing love and that God is love and he'll love you. He walked through the town and all he said was 40 days and you're all gonna die. 40 days and you're all gonna be obliterated from the face of the earth. And what happens? The king and everyone else in that major city state gets converted and they believe. (laughs) They even make the animals repent. Not everybody has a perfect repentance, but the king says, make the animals do this too. All the way down, all the way through. And he's what? Jonah gives the message of life after what? being three days and three nights in death, in the belly of the fish. So Jesus says, I'm like that. I will be three days and three nights in the darkness of death and then will come out. So then you will know that I am the actual real teacher sent from God. But we need more than a teacher. We need more than a teacher as proof of who Jesus was. So the apostle Paul records this in Romans 1, 4. In Romans 1, about one through eight is Paul's introduction of the book of Romans, and it's highly condensed. You could spend forever on each phrase in that one little paragraph. We're looking at this one in particular in verse four, when he's talking about Jesus was declared to be the son of God. So Paul's saying Jesus was declared to be the son of God somehow. 
Somehow and in some way, Jesus, that one who came, born of a virgin, Mary, we know her name, and adopted by Joseph, we know his name, that one who lived and who died, who rose again and ascended, that one, Paul says, he was declared in some way to be the son of God. How was that declared? According, in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The resurrection from the dead declares Jesus to be God because only God can conquer death. Every other man that's ever died is dead and still dead. Only God can conquer death. This is the very son of God. So one is that we can believe him, the sign of Jonah. He says what God says. He's the teacher sent from God. But more than that, he is God. He is God. And the resurrection declares him to be that. But it also confirms Jesus' own words. If we don't have a bodily resurrection of Christ, then Christ himself is a liar. Look at these examples. Matthew 17, 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. What you guys just saw, we don't have time to go into that, but what you guys just saw, you can't tell anybody until I come back from the dead, then you can tell everybody. It has to happen. Luke 18, 31 through 33. And taking the 12, Jesus said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. After flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Lays it all out before they even get in town, before anything hits the fan. He will rise, Jesus said. Plain as day. John 2, we saw this two years ago. <laughs> We've been in John for a while. John 2, 19 through 22, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. They remembered what he said after he raised that moment of them being at the temple when Jesus cleans it out and then starts talking about him being the true temple, the final temple. They don't get it then, but John writes the book after Jesus has risen from the dead. So he tells you midstream, hey, by the way, we ended up understanding this after he rose from the dead. So Jesus is a liar if he doesn't really rise from the dead. Now, we also need to know this. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We confess the Holy Spirit. But if there is no resurrection, then there is no Holy Spirit for us. Because John 16, 7, saw this a few months ago. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, Jesus speaking, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So this is Jesus talking about the ascension, but you can't ascend to heaven unless you first rise from the dead. So if he doesn't, then we don't have the Holy Spirit. And if he can't raise from the dead, then what good is the Spirit of God anyways? And if he stays dead, Christ says in John, we see John 16 and John 14 as well. He says, my spirit, I will send to you. What good is Jesus's spirit if he can't raise him from the dead? Why would we want him? What can he do for us? Nothing. So we lose not only 
Christ, we lose the doctrine of the Holy Spirit as well if we don't have a, the bodily resurrection. And then here's the ultimate reality. Romans 10, 9 through 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Work backwards in verse 9. That last phrase in verse 9 says, you will be saved. How will you be saved? How? You've got to confess. What do I confess? Well, two things. Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. If you deny the bodily resurrection of Christ, you are not saved. There is no hope for your soul. Paul says it right there. The bodily resurrection is not a throwaway doctrine. It's not something that we can eh, take or leave it. I'm not going to bicker with you about it. It's not secondary. It's not tertiary. It is primary. Primary of primary. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 that if you get anything from this message, then just know when you are concerned or worried about the resurrection of Christ, go to 1 Corinthians 15. That is 58 verses on the resurrection of Christ and all the implications from it. And if you have a Bible with cross references, it'll take you to the rest of the places in the Bible that you need to know. So know that. But that chapter says, as we read, we are the most pathetic people of all most to be pitied if we have our hope in a resurrection that can't or didn't happen. We're still in our sins. We're still gonna die and still be judged by God because God is still real. Because we still know that evil exists and that good exists. And then I have an internal moral reality that every headhunter in the tribes and the jungles and the islands doesn't want his own head hunted. Why? Because he knows it's wrong. He's going to do it anyway. So God still exists, but there's no hope for your soul if there is no resurrection. And if you deny it, there is, you, you have denied the saving Christ. It doesn't mean that you have to know everything there is to know about the resurrection. Take the thief on the cross. He wasn't even around to see the resurrection. He died when Jesus died. It's the denial of the resurrection. If you deny, you refuse to confess that God raised him from the dead, you will not be saved. Our salvation hinges upon it. We need the resurrection for these doctrines and so many more. But now what we must do is equip ourselves to answer the deniers. Why deny it? You ask yourself, why deny the resurrection? And of all the myriad of reasons that are out there, that exist, that somebody could contrive, make up, or just spit out, regurgitate, there is one fundamental reason that it's rejected and denied because of its supernatural character. That's it. Because it's a supernatural fact, a supernatural event, that's why it's denied. The underlying reason, the underlying reason rather, for its rejection that is nearly universally accepted as a rejection is, is this tenet that the rest of the, the unbelieving world holds to is that miracles cannot happen. They do not happen. That natural law cannot be violated. That's the underlying reason. Natural law cannot be violated. 
Now, when somebody says that to you, don't let anybody say that. I hold to, I'm a naturalist, a Darwinist. I, I, I see at things and that's all that I go on. And the natural laws are what they are and they cannot be violated. Then just pause and ask them, what about Newton's first law? The law of inertia. Because you said that something had to act upon or get the spinning ball of dust spinning. It was sitting still. And what does Newton's law, first law, say? It says an object at rest will stay at rest unless it's acted upon by a greater force. What was the greater force that started the whole thing? That's a violation. Your whole worldview of naturalism, of Darwinism, of whatever you want to call it, is built upon a violation of natural law. The very origin, the very seed of it is a violation of natural law. So you do believe in the supernatural. Why not come and believe in the Christ that's been raised? So we, we hold to that. Now, here's the reality, though, is that most of the attacks on the resurrection come from within the camp and not outside. I mean, think about, think about the modern day that we live in, the postmodern, even post-postmodern. We live in a day of insanity, of denying anything that was unbelievably confirmed for every generation. If a man can become pregnant, our culture would be like, yeah, somebody could rise from the dead, sure. They have no problem with that real reality. What we're fighting, who we argue against, are people inside the camp. That's who we're fighting against. That's who comes up with all these liberal theories. And we're going to look at them. And it's just, this is how it always works. It's church people who are embarrassed of the Bible who do this. Isn't that how Israel, Old Testament Israel, always got in trouble? It was never because out of the blue, they were overwhelmed by some powerful force and God was like, oh no, I had no idea. It's always because they say, hey, what they have over there looks like something we need. And well, I mean, it looks kind of stupid for us to act like this and cut our hair like this, not eat this and only eat this because, I mean, I mean the Jebusites and the Girgashites and the Perizzites and, and the Canaanites and the Philistines, I mean, they all do that stuff. We don't want to look weird or stupid. So they give in and then they get punished from outside. So the same is true in the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and following, for what have I to do with judging outsiders, meaning I have nothing to do with judging outsiders. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? It meaning evaluate and make a call on. God judges those outside, but we, Paul here, quoting from the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy, purge the evil person from among you. Tares are always among God's wheat. We must be vigilant. These theories aren't being lobbed at us by the big atheists in the major universities. It's coming from inside the camp. So here's the first one, the falsehood theory. And <clears throat> all these theories, I'm gonna give you a summary and then a refutation. So here's the summary of the falsehood theory. The disciples stole the body and they wove an intricate lie about the resurrection and all these other things. And so it was really them that did it. The thing that the Pharisees feared is what actually happened. This is the falsehood theory. Here's the refutation. Why would anybody persist in suffering for a lie that they made up? If you're going to hold the falsehood theory, read past the end of John into the book of Acts. Did they have a good life? Do they have an easy life? 
Paul's in jail. He's being beaten. Peter's in and out of jail. They all get crucified or Peter gets crucified upside down. Paul gets beheaded. John's the only one who gets a decent kind of death, but he's just left on a rock in the Mediterranean Ocean to die of starvation. Would you say, now this lie is worth it? I know we bamboozled everybody, but I'm going to die for this. Of course not. It's ludicrous. They had everything to lose and nothing to gain by bearing false witness here. Everything to lose because nobody liked Jesus and it would easily be. You don't have semi-trucks driving, you don't have trains. You have to haul this body. There are no secret tunnels. Everything to lose, nothing to gain. So falsehood three, throw it out. Number two, swoon theory. We've talked about this briefly before in a few weeks, but this is that Christ passed out on the cross. He swooned, he fainted, and then when he got in the tomb, the coldness of it and, and the darkness of it just kind of shocked him, and he, and he was back. They thought he was dead, but he wasn't really dead. Now, we've refuted this before, but we got to do it again. Who are the people in charge of Jesus' death? Are they modern video game playing 21st century softies? Or are they hardened killers? whose only job is to kill. These are soldiers in the Roman army. Did the Romans conquer the world by saying, hey, would you guys please give up and give us your land? They went in and slaughtered people. They know what a dead body is. It's handled by Joseph and Nicodemus. They know what a dead body is because they're of the priestly class, making sacrifices of animals. So we have that. Secondly, re refuting the swoon theory, how does a... We, nobody denies the beatings Jesus took, and we described those. So you have exposed backbone. You have flesh hanging off of him. You have exposed nerve endings. You have blood loss beyond what you can imagine. And that guy moved the stone and then walked to Jerusalem and then walked to Emmaus, Luke 24, and then walked back to Jerusalem without being bandaged up or seeing a doctor of any kind, let alone even if he did, it wouldn't even work. And then lastly, where did he go after? See, the resurrection presumes his ascension. So does he appear to these people and they think, wow, he really rose from the dead. Then how does he hide from them? He keeps just disappearing from their presence. Otherwise, they would just follow him everywhere. How did he get away from everybody? Did he just like a barn cat go off in the woods and die? So we got to reject swoon theory. Now, here's the vision theory, number one. There's a number two. Here's number one. The disciples are sparked by Mary Magdalene because she's so fanatic. She goes to the tomb, like we saw last week, and she has this crazy experience, and she comes back and tells everybody, I really did see him. And so then they all kind of collectively join in this group hysteria and see, yeah, yeah, we, we see him now too. There he is, he's right here. Did you hear him say that? He said that, yeah. So there's this group kind of delusion. They had this vision and they tricked themselves into seeing it. But here's the problem. Mary, and let alone the rest of the disciples, but none of them expected the resurrection. When she saw the actual resurrected Jesus, what did she say? Hey, Mr. Gardner, can you tell me where you put the body? She didn't expect it. Paul, I mean, or, uh, Peter and John, they run to the tomb because they're like, we had no idea about the resurrection, even though Jesus told us had not to do this. They had no idea. Simultaneously, other, then, then, then lastly, when was the last time Paul records it being 500 people at one time. And so then you count the disciples and the women on top of all that. Over 500 people had the same hallucination at the same time. So you have to throw that one out. But then, so, so liberal theologians saw, okay, yeah, that one's a little bit crazy, but we can improve on that one. 
we'll make a vision theory 2.0. Here's what happened. What actually happened was God sent a real hallucination to them. It wasn't a mind game. It was actually a hallucination. He sent them an actual vision that they saw. It was, a, it was a real hallucination. And so really Mary hallucinated, really the disciples did, Thomas did when he put his fingers in the holes and, and all that, and the people and the 500 group and then up on the hill when he sent, God sent him a real hallucination. Well, hallucination like that would be supernatural. Why not just affirm the resurrection? Why are you doing everything you can to deny the resurrection? If he can do a hallucination for 500 people, just say he rose from the dead. Just hold to that. That's all you have to do. Then you get to the, the more absurd one, uh, the most absurd one, the wrong tomb theory. They just went to the wrong one and then told everybody he rose from the dead and nobody thought to go look in that one. Here's the problem. We know from John chapter 19 that Joseph's family tomb was right next to Golgotha. And then if you're the disciples wanting to go to the tomb, what do you have to look for? Just look for the one with all the Roman soldiers. They've been there from Friday night, all day Saturday and, fr and Sunday morning. That's the one. The Pharisees have a lot invested in you not getting to it. So just go to the one that has the soldiers. So it's foolish to think that they went to the wrong tomb to steal the body. And then lastly, here's honestly, this is the most popular one and it's the stupidest one, but it's the most popular one and it's the one that lingers on forever and it's the one that you are maybe, if you're tempted to just be sympathetic to someone, it would be this one. It's the metaphor theory. So they're not gonna, they're just gonna say, you know what? Whether or not the resurrection had to take place, it doesn't really matter. If it didn't take place for you, as long as Christ is raised in your heart. You know, it, it, sometimes we get, we get mixed up and we think that the Bible's being literal when it's really not and it's getting some kind of metaphor. So the metaphor of the resurrection, imagine somebody getting up with all the fire and slobber slang and preaching the metaphor of him raising up in your hearts and go with him in your hearts. You could be like, well, maybe, maybe. This metaphor theory, I mean, it just inspires us to continue in his steps. But here's the refutation. Did we hear all the appearance claims that the Bible made? See, when you get metaphorical or when you do something like that, what you're banking on as a preacher is that nobody else is going to read their Bible ever. And you never tell them to. Because if they did... They go, well, I mean, Mary talked to him. Do you talk to metaphors? Uh, they ate fish and bread with him and John 21 on the shore. Uh, do you eat with metaphors? Now, I do know that there is real sin and that there is real evil and there is real death. Can a metaphor save me from something that's real? Can something that's not real save me from something that is real? No. So we have to throw it out, but you could see how that one would be the most um, frequently used one to bamboozle people into thinking, well, yeah, maybe I could, I could, you know, we could just let bygones be bygones. It's real to me. It's metaphor to you. No, a metaphor condemns you to hell. Only a risen savior brings you into glory. So here's, we move into the pilgrim's hope because we are pilgrims in this planet. Peter says in 1 Peter that we are strangers and aliens. The old King James says that we are 
pilgrims and sojourners. We travel here. And what the resurrection does is it gives us hope. Hope of so many things. And biblical hope is not like what we say. Biblical hope is what we have every time our favorite team is playing a better team. Or unbiblical hope is. I wish I have good thoughts and it might happen that they win. Biblical hope is not like that. Biblical hope is a confident assurance of a future reality. If this is going to happen. This is real. This will happen. And that's what the resurrection gives us as pilgrims. The first thing that it does is is the definitive declaration that death is vanquished. 1 Corinthians 15. We didn't read all the way to this, but you need to hear it. Verse 54 through 57. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The the metaphor theory is especially troubling because it's, it's convincing in our emotional, sentimental day. But what are you going to offer that person who is dying? What are you going to offer that person who is on their deathbed? We will all be there. What will go through your mind when that heart attack hits you at your desk? What will be going through your mind when that drunk driver crosses the double white lines? And you are your last breath, you're upside down in the strap of the seatbelt. Will the metaphor comfort you? You're facing death. It's happening. We've all seen death in horrible ways. I have seen tiny caskets. I've, I've counseled entire families who have drowned. We've seen horrible death. It's happening in Ukraine. It happens millions of times a year in abortion clinics all over the world. Death is everywhere. What will you do when you face it? Will you look for some kind of metaphor to just power through? Or do you need some kind of victory over it? Because no matter what you say, and no matter what Hollywood says, you are afraid to die. You are. So how do we conquer this enemy? We can't. But Christ did conquer it for us. So when Paul says, death, where is your sting? Meaning, I have to go through this, but it's not going to bite me. The way that John Bunyan pictures it, he pictures it in Pilgrim's Progress at the end of the book as a river, like the Jordan River, where the Israelites are coming into the promised land. They have to cross the Jordan River. And when he gets there, the water is intimidating, right? Because what Christian doesn't know is how deep is it? I can see the other side. I can see the celestial city on the other side, but how deep is the water? Am I going to be able to touch? And the thing about Pilgrim's Progress is that Christian, the pilgrim himself, is never alone. He always has somebody with him. Faithful dies in Vanity Fair because faithfulness always or inevitably in some people leads to your execution in this life. But you know who follows and goes with Christian all the way to the river's edge? Hopeful. Hopeful goes with him there. 
And when Christian steps into the water, he becomes weak mentally, spiritually, emotionally weak, and he's afraid. And then hopeful grabs him and he says, be of good cheer, my brother, for I feel the bottom and it is good. And then hopeful walks him across to the other side. See, our hope in a vanquished death takes the sting out of it. Christ, has, he's conquered it. He's killed it. It's, it's, it's over. We can go through it with hope. We can see the other side and know we'll get there because death has been conquered. And with a conquered death, we know that we have seals on the greatest doctrines that we hold true. See, the resurrection is the seal on justification. Look at Romans 4.25. Christ, who, has who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is how Jim Boyce restated it. He said, Jesus was put to death because we had transgressed and he was raised because we were justified. He was raised so that we might be justified. The stamp on our, the seal that, un, that makes our, un, our justification un, unlockable, unlosable is the resurrection. It's the proof that the Father accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sin. Three days of unanswered doubt. Will God accept this? Is this actually the final sacrifice? Friday and Saturday, I don't know. Sunday morning early, I don't know. Until the moment comes when he's out, then now we know God the Father has accepted this sacrifice. Once for all, the often repeated phrase in the book of Hebrews, once for all, the Lord's day morning is the shout of approval. He died as our representative and we died in him. He was resurrected as our representative and we resurrected in him. Because of the resurrection, we can know not a single sin remains on us. God said so when he raised him up. That was the approval. No matter how heinous, numerous, or continuous they may be, not a single one sits on us. It's also the seal of our sanctification. Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, just as in the same way he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is why we can walk in newness of life. There's no hope, there's no possibility for us to live a life of pleasing, that is pleasing to God, a Christ-like life without the resurrection. The hopelessness of the metaphor theory. You can't please God unless you are in Christ. That metaphor does me no good because we've all been inspired and we've seen people be inspired by heroic deaths or, or sacrificial actions. But doesn't it fade out? Isn't that a trope on every single sitcom in the world? So-and-so saves so-and-so's life. So then so-and-so says, I'm gonna follow you and do everything that you say for the rest of my life. And then that gets abused and then they're just even because they can't keep doing it. That's what the metaphor would get you. You can't keep following Christ. You can't keep pleasing God with your life unless you have been raised with him. You're in Christ. Now you can. It's proof that we can please God. We no longer rely on our power and strength, but we're enveloped by Christ's power and strength to live a life that's actually pleasing to him. We have victory over sin in our lives because Christ had victory over sin forever. He was raised. 
On our own, we were helpless, weak, and unable to resist temptation. But in Christ, we have deliverance and victory by his power. He conquered every sin and ended its tyranny for us. It's no longer master over us, Romans 6 goes on to say. It's also the seal on our eternal life. Death is not the end for us, for our existence. Listen to these several passages. John 14, 3, Jesus speaking, And if I go, meaning ascend, and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Jesus' resurrection and then ascension to heaven, it assumes that his disciples will follow. He says, if I go through all this that I've told you about, the death, you know, the horrible beatings, the horrible lashings, the, the horrible crucifixion, the three days in the tomb and then the resurrection, and then the ascension, then that means you're going to be where I am. It was never a, well, you might be. No, it's you will be. If you are mine, then you will be where I am. The New Testament authors, they continue this train of thought. Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4.14, for since we believe, we believe that as Christians, that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep being a, an image of death for the Christian. And that's not the end. You wake up from being asleep. We will rise again to, to glory. Because we believe he died and rose again, we will be with Christ. They're connected. It's the seal. Our eternal life is contingent upon his resurrection. And our final bodily resurrection does so as well. We read 1 Corinthians 15 and following. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. They belong to Christ. First Thessalonians 4, 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This isn't the, the point of our message, but sometimes what we think is we talk about our bodies as prisons, and I can't wait to just get rid of this thing. That's, that's Gnosticism. You're supposed to have a body. God intends you to have a body. You have a flawed, fallen body, but you have a perfect body when he raises you from the dead. That's why we value the body. That's why Christians historically have never burned dead bodies because of the respect for it. We, we, we go and make this big because that body's gonna rise again. Now, of course, we know that bodies that have died 3,000 years ago, they're long gone, they're disintegrated, but the, it's the respect, it's the idea. If Christ bodily rose from the grave, then so am I. Now, my time when it, as a spirit without a body could be longer than Christ, who was only three days in that state. But our eternal totally restored, cancer-free, eye problems-free, creaking ankles-free, all these pains and sufferings that we have, free. And we'll recognize each other. Just like the disciples all looked at Jesus and said, that's him. That's what he looks like. I know him. So without the resurrection, we have no hope of life beyond the grave. But because of the resurrection, we have an unconquerable confidence in eternal life. John 14, 19, because I live, you also will live. You also will live. It's also the seal on the final judgment. Listen to Acts 17, 30 through 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands, not begs, not pleads. 
He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Now, who's the judge? By a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all. How? By raising him from the dead. He's the judge because he's risen from the dead. Once and for all. Christ's death and resurrection has earned him that title. 2 Timothy 4.1 says that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. Sin and evil seemed to triumph at the cross, but Christ unquestionably conquers at the resurrection. Thus, all things are subject to him at his final judgment. Hebrews 9.26-27, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and just as is appointed for man to die once, and after that, comes judgment after that comes judgment and you think man why would you include that in this pilgrim's hope section it doesn't sound very hopeful what would it say of God if he did nothing with evil why is it that people are moving from all over the country mostly the coasts to states that have magistrates that enforce the law because they realize living somewhere where evil is not punished is horrible. It's miserable. We can't go on like this. And if you won't protect me, then what good are you? If you won't set right what's wrong, then what good are you? If you are too weak to deal with evil, then I have no business with you. But we have hope that when it seems like evil is winning, and it certainly seems like that in our day, that Christ's resurrection seals him as a judge that will one day be dealt with. We need not trouble ourselves with it. Christ will deal with it. We leave room for the vengeance of God. He is avenger. I will repay, says the Lord. So we have hope in that. And then lastly, just the concept of our unshakable foundation of hope. It affirms the resurrection. It affirms our confident expectation that God will fulfill his promises to us. We saw 1 Corinthians 15, 19 through 20. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know what first fruits are? That's the best of your grain harvest that you would give to God under the old covenant system. And the first fruits means I'm, I'm harvesting this knowing that more crops are growing behind it. I give God the best, knowing that there will be others. That's what Christ is for us. And then if you remember any one singular passage from this morning, it's this next one. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4. Hear this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us, not cooperated with us, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, not a dead hope, not a passive hope, not, not a quiet hope, a living, a vital, a vigorous hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's how he caused us to be born again. That's how he's able to give us a living hope. That's verse four, it's an inheritance that is imperishable, 
undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, meaning no one can touch it. It's kept by God for you, a living hope. That's what the resurrection is for us. Burkhoff, the systematic theologian, said the atoning work of Christ, if it was to be effective at all, had to terminate, not in death, but in life. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, that makes him the true prophet, the true priest, and the true king. He said everything that is of God as a prophet. He was our overseeing high priest and at the same time, the sacrificial lamb that took away the sin of the world. And he is the king who rules over all and protects, restores, preserves us with his authority that he earned and was verified at the empty tomb. So I would suggest that we pray for ourselves what the Apostle Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus. We pray that we would know, Ephesians 1, 19-20, that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Amen. Father in heaven, this glorious reality of the resurrection, we are, have minds too small to, to comprehend and to take in. I pray for all these brothers and sisters in here that we would never stop marveling, that we would never be content with what we currently know of the resurrection, that we would dive so deeply into these eternal truths that they would just come out of us, that when, we, when we're squeezed, when we're, we're stabbed, that's what comes out of us. Our blood bleeds the confession, the truth, and the confidence of the resurrection of Christ. And we do feel the squeeze, Lord, you know, of our culture. You see, as you saw this same thing happening into the Greek Empire, to the Roman Empire, the Persian Empire, the British Empire, and every single solitary, small community, society, or country everywhere throughout all world history. You see the decadence, you see the, the moral insanity Without hyperbole, you see the moral insanity, and you know it. You sovereignly rule over it, and you, in your divine providence and wisdom, chose each and every single one of us for this day. You want us here, and we are in no position to question your wisdom as to whether or not we should live in the era in which we do. So, equip us, Father. We ask, we plead, equip us to withstand the fiery darts of the evil one, that we would take seriously the reality of the, the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. We need them because it is war around us. May we cherish more and more every going week, each Lord's Day that we gather together to where we can come in here, we can lay down our armor in a sense, we can have our, sh our swords sharpened, that we can come and be refreshed, be encouraged, that we can look across the room and linger in the lobby, 
knowing that we are not pilgrims alone, that we are not walking through treacherous places, dark valleys, and ominous forests and dry deserts alone, not in any way. You have built us together as a body, as a building, brick by brick. May we be blessed and encouraged by that. And even in, in our day, may we redouble our commitment to not forsake the assembling of the body. As is the habit of some, we know, as we see the day drawing near. We see the day drawing near. And you said in Hebrews 10 that when that happens, people are going to be tempted to forsake the assembly, forsake the gathering. Help us to not do that. Forgive us when we do, and may we repent of it. And may we do everything we can to, to, to scratch and claw to be here, not only for our own edification, but to edify one another, that we have brothers and sisters who are barely hanging on, who need encouragement, who need a faithful word, who need to hear just one more voice singing all together praise as the encouragement, as they have to go back into the jobs, into the workplaces, into the neighborhoods where your name is spat upon, where your truth is denied, and where there is no hope, and where people eat each other. May we draw strength from the gathering, and we know that this gathering has only any significance because the resurrection actually happened, because it is real. So we stand upon that foundational truth that you didn't weave just an interesting book full of ancient stories that climaxes in an irrelevant place. Now, those were real people. Those were real conversations that you were really having with our forefathers, like Adam and like Joseph and like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and like David and like Elijah and Elisha and like Ruth and like Esther, building all the way up to the great preacher John the Baptist who said, make way for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you did that and we thank you for it. May we stand with that great chorus of believers, a little snippet of which meets here each Lord's Day, to not only be encouraged, but more importantly, to give you the worship that you deserve, that is due your name. We bring this offering, and you haven't asked for specifics on money or animals or anything. You just ask for our whole hearts. In spirit and in truth, we offer what we owe the great and glorious, merciful and gracious God who redirected his wrath onto his son so that he might pour out the abundance of his love upon us. And we thank you for that and we stand in that today. And we offer all this up in Christ's name, amen.